Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hi there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I cannot wait to introduce our guest today. Um, Several listeners submitted questions related to a part of our roles that many of us, frankly, aren't as comfortable with, Um, and that role is counseling. Um, it particularly when it comes to counseling students who stutter. And when these questions were coming in, um, I thought of Kristen uh, Camilla. She was recommended actually by Lauren LaCour from Busy Bee Speech because um, we were just chatting about like who could help break this down for us. So I cannot wait um, to dive in and ask her all of the questions that you have been asking. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about Kristen. Um, she is an SLP and she is also a board certified specialist in fluency. Um, she spends the majority of her time working with individuals of all ages with fluency disorders at her clinic, which is the Camilla Fluency Center um, in the suburban Chicago area. Um, She has lectured on the topic of childhood stuttering around the world, and she is the co-founder and co-director of Camp Shoutout, which is a therapeutic program for school-age children who stutter and a hands-on training opportunity for professionals and graduate students. Um, And she's been very busy because that's not all. So throughout her career, uh, Kristen has collaborated extensively with the Stuttering Foundation on training videos, conferences, publications. Um, She's also the lead author of Basic Principle Problem Solving, working with school-age children who stutter. So you've probably seen some of her work around there, especially um, related to the Stuttering Foundation. And yeah, I cannot wait to dive into all of the practical tips and strategies related to counseling. Um, But before we do that, uh, Kristen, I'm really excited to hear a little bit about your experience as an SLP um, and just getting to learn a little bit more about how you came to specialize in this area. Well, first of all, Marisha, I want to thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast This is a wonderful opportunity for us to have a conversation about children who stutter and, of course, for us to reach many speech-language pathologists who are helping children who stutter. Well, I can tell you that um, I graduated with my master's about 32 years ago, and I had no intention of working with people who stutter. I had started my own therapy when I was an undergraduate student at about the age of 19 for my own stuttering. And I really, I became interested in the field, but I had no intention of going into stuttering. And I took my first job in the schools and enjoyed it very much and also got married and then started my family. And so I worked in the schools for a couple of years, first full-time and then part-time. And I realized that I really wanted to know more about helping children who stutter. And so I went to my principal and I said, I think there's a need and I would like to help fill it. And I'd like to learn more about this and be available for different therapists in the district if they need help. And so they asked me to do a workshop. I'll never forget that workshop. It was three hours long. And I thought, how am I going to do this? I've never even given a speech for five minutes. (laughs) And, um, I really thought I was crazy when, when I got there that day and how I got myself into that. But I, I sat down and I started thinking, well, what is it that we need to know? And how can we help clinicians who don't feel comfortable with this disorder? And this was the same back then as sometimes we hear now. And so I began doing some workshops and I began consulting within my school district. And I didn't know very much about stuttering, but I think because I grew up stuttering, And I went to Northwestern University, which was a very well-recognized university for fluency and stuttering at the time. Um, I think people thought that I could share something. So uh, once I had a family, I started with a client on my living room floor. And now I, as you said in the introduction, I do run the Camilla Fluency Center and we do service 
probably about 60 to 70 fluency cases a week. So I've been really deep in this for a very, very long time. And I, I think that I remember talking to my mentor, Dr. Hugo Gregory, at the time when I was a young clinician. He gave me a couple pieces of advice. One was, he said, you know, you can't really specialize in stuttering. There isn't enough work. And I thought that was so interesting. So I began putting myself in positions where I got the clinical experience. And of course, now that's quite different. We can work in various settings where we do service more of this population. And the second thing he said to me was, early in your career, you might be doing some things um, that perhaps people ask you to do, and there may not be great monetary value in that, but it will always come back to you. And I I will never forget that advice. And I began providing some in-service training and some collaboration for different organizations. Um, And certainly um, that was some very good advice that he gave me. So I, I was so interested in stuttering. I just got more clients and pretty soon that's what I was doing. And um, I will say that I became a specialist over the years of work that I had put in before we even had specialty certification. And, And I will say that my ongoing relationships with my mentors and various colleagues that I learned so much from when I used to teach for the Stuttering Foundation um, those relationships really supported um, my skills as a specialist and the development of that. So, and I, the other thing I want to mention is that many people think that I do a lot of lecturing and I was giving a seminar once and there were some women in the bathroom and I heard them talking and they said, oh, well, she doesn't do therapy. She, she goes around and lectures and teaches and publishes and And really, it's the exact opposite. I spend the majority of my time at my clinic. I probably do at least 25 sessions a week by myself uh, with clients. And the other piece of advice that Dr. Gregory gave me was never stop treating the client. Never stop doing the diagnosis and the therapy. Always keep your hand in it so that you can talk with people about how you are evolving as a clinician. You know, we're all our latest clients, right? So um, I think that was very good advice as well. Wow, what an amazing mentor and what an amazing wealth of knowledge that you've just acquired over your career so far. And it's um, it's kind of encouraging because like you're here now and you have – dedicated all of these years of experience to really learning so much about fluency. Um, But you started out just like us and um, you just kind of got on those bootstraps and just started exploring and figuring things out. And I think that's encouraging because that means we can figure it out too. And you're just an amazing guide to help us through that now. Sorry, Marisha, I thought you were done. Um, The one thing that I firmly believe is that we can make a choice to keep evolving. And Mm -hmm. I have felt that way about myself as a communicator. And I have felt that way about myself as a clinician. And there's always things we can be learning from others. And I won't stop evolving until I'm done, I guess, my time on earth is done because I feel so strongly that we all have the potential to do that. And um, as long as we keep doing the next thing and perhaps pushing ourselves maybe just slightly farther than we think we're capable, um, that is the makings of a great career, I think. Yeah, I love that. And that makes so much sense. And I could not agree more. Uh, so let's dive into all things counseling now. Um, and before we talk about some more of the logistics, I'm curious from your perspective, why is this such an important part of therapy when we are working with children who stutter? The first thing I'd like to say is that counseling is important for all the children that we serve or all the clients that we serve. Because in order to 
provide genuine reinforcement to help someone facilitate behavioral change, attitude change. We have to have a positive relationship. And the definition, I think, of counseling begins with establishing that positive relationship. I do think that whenever we're helping any individual create change, that's our first priority. You know, with that said, children who stutter, perhaps they can, they do have a unique experience in that, number one, they're coping with a problem that is variable. And it doesn't always present itself. Some days are harder, some days are easier. And the research shows that a very high percentage of children, I want to say it's about 85% of children who stutter, experience some type of bullying, teasing, mimicking prior to the third grade. And we also know from research that it is common for children to have more negative attitudes and emotions around themselves as communicators. The other reason why I think it's so important deals with the landscape of the problem. So there are external things we can observe with children who stutter. We can see them stuttering. We can see them starting to say a word, stopping, and then saying another word or perhaps retreating from a situation. But there are also many internal aspects of the problem. The thoughts and the feelings, the amount of time, the child may be wondering if they can say the sentence, you know, on the paper that's coming, say the teacher's calling on children around the room, and they're already glancing down and wondering if they're going to be able to say it or not. I think that that piece of it makes it very complex. And yet, I think if we think about um, many problems that people have, of course, there are internal features and external features to those. And I, I, you will notice that I, as we talk about this, I tend to, I tend to prefer to describe behavior than I use, say, labels for certain things. So many individuals will say, well, stuttering can be overt or covert. And, you know, that person is a covert stutterer, meaning they they hide the stuttering and they avoid and they don't communicate freely, whereas overt is the person that doesn't tend to do that. And I, I really try to stay away from those labels. I think there are so many nuances to each of us. So um, I, I do believe that counseling, since I have started my career and have been in the field, um, I do believe that Dr. Gregory would be thrilled to see the progress that we've made in terms of talking about this, supporting children. Um, it was a long time, I think, before we were able to recognize that these needs were just as important as the need to help children modify some communicative behaviors if that's what they wanted to do. And um, I do believe, and Dr. Gregory always told this to me, um, that as professionals, we are the ones, speech pathologists are the professionals that can obtain and commit to getting trained in these areas and to best service these children. Uh, we are the profession that understands stuttering the most. And I'm not making a blanket statement stating that every professional in our in speech language pathology has the skills and the ability to do this. But we have the opportunity to develop those skills and to get that experience. And that we really are the ones that need to be addressing these issues unless they are out of the circle, perhaps, of what we would deal with. I had a client, for instance, whose father... Um, was so distraught because his son was stuttering and he also was a person who stutters that and the mother sent me a text this is several years ago and he had um, written a suicide letter and she had found it before it happened and so obviously that was something that was out of the realm 
of what I, my scope of practice. And so, um, of course, I made an immediate referral so that he could get help from another professional who was trained to deal with something like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I think that's part of what makes it a little bit scarier because there are so many of those emotions and, um, just different, those negative attitudes that can be so incredibly strong. And so it makes it a little bit scary sometimes to start navigating that. Um, and the one thing I want to say, Marisha, that is so important is that the more we learn about children and mm-hmm. what is a child who is eight years old? What is that child about? <laughs> you know, what is a 12-year-old child about? And the more we read and understand the nature of the developmental stage of the child, I think the more successful we can be. Um, and I think that all of us come to this realization as we are helping counsel people that emotions are normal and they are real and they are universal. And that a big part of our ability to approach this counseling aspect of our work is to also be working on our own feelings about things. The healthier we are, the more we can bring to the table that availability to create that positive relationship. Yeah, so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I'm, because I think you were starting to get into some tips for that SLPs can use when they're starting to navigate this. Um, So like, let's say, let's just pick like your three top tips. Um, Like what three tips would you give speech language pathologists who are unsure of where to start and navigating that? I love what you said about kind of checking in with your own attitudes, like whether in your own emotions, just your own emotional health in general. But I assume that applies to your attitudes about stuttering as well. Sure. sure. Um, Well, my first top tip would be to invest the time in the proper evaluation. So, and what I mean by that, and I'm going to really um, address this more for the school-age child who perhaps is continuing to stutter because we do exploration of these things differently for a school-age child and a teenager, Um, but certainly for a young child as well. We take the time to understand what does the child think about this? What do they think is going on? And we usually begin that with some very informal questions as we're interacting. Do you like talking? Who do you like to talk to the most? What do you like to talk about? Is there anything about your talking that you think is not easy or is easy? Is there anything about it that you wish would be different? And many times we get information from a child just through an informal, very non-threatening conversation, usually while we're doing something else. And then we may use some informal pencil-paper tasks. These come from the Stuttering Foundation workbook, Camilla and Reardon. It's a non-for-profit book, Um, and it's a very basic way of looking at some of this information. There are also some wonderful standardized measures for looking at the attitudes and feelings of children. One would be the OASIS or the overall um, assessment of the speaker's experience of stuttering. Um, And there are different um, stages of development that that OASIS is appropriate for. There's one for um, elementary school children and then for um, teenagers on up um, through adults. So The point is, and this is something that I continue to ask myself, even to this day, do I know that about that child or am I making an assumption? Do I know that or is it an assumption? Many times a child will 
come in and have a particular situation that has happened, or I will get wind of something from a school therapist or teacher, and I'll immediately assume the child might be thinking about that, worried about that, upset about that. And when I talk with the child, it's completely the opposite. So it's taking the time to understand where that child is in terms of these perceptions and attitudes, as well as the parents and and others involved in the situation, um, in the, the therapy process. That's number one. Um, and the one thing I will say that I think is very helpful for children, and I've mentioned this, but I'll say it again, is if you talk with them naturally while you're doing something else, you're not going to get a whole lot if you just look at a child and point blank say, how do you feel about your speech? Fine, <laughs> is what they usually say, or I don't know, or nothing. <laughs> Um, but if we begin just asking some questions um, while we're doing something else, many times we will get more information. Um, so that's my first point. My second point is, which goes to what we were just talking about before, but a little bit more. If you want to engage in counseling with others. You must spend a little bit of time with yourself every day. And the most basic way I can say this is to start your own mindfulness practice. I know the word mindfulness is used often now in many, many ways across many, many professions and disciplines. I am a, a meditator and I just completed a 200-hour immersion in mindfulness yoga. Um, so that I could enhance my work with people who stutter. And one of the things I think that's made a significant difference for me is committing to a daily 10-minute mindfulness practice that is my own. Um, and in doing that, we learn how to be compassionate towards ourselves and how to be perhaps less judgmental. And those are the, the characteristics or the um, the qualities that we want to bring to the table when we have a child that is suffering or parents that are suffering. And we don't have to fix the problem. What we have to do is make space for it to come out and we have to be able to validate it. And we have to be comfortable helping the individual move forward when they're ready. So the best way to begin is by beginning with ourselves and committing to that 10-minute mindfulness practice. There are many apps and ways that individuals start that. Um, I do think that mindfulness is going to be coming into our field more and more. I'm excited for that. Um, but that would be the second very basic yet complex thing. And the third thing is start with some resources. So if I were to tell you the best resources that I feel could help um, any clinician. Number one, it would be to read a very well-known book by Faber and Maslish called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. That book has been around since I was a very young parent. I studied the skills and concepts in that book. Many of them we adapted in our Stuttering Foundation book, but part of learning to counsel is learning the skills of how to talk with children and how to get in with them. And so I would highly recommend that book. That is not a book in speech pathology. It's a book um, outside of our field. Um, and then the other book that I would recommend is the latest edition of David Luterman's counseling book, which is within our field. He's an audiologist and has made significant contributions in the area of counseling families and, and others who have communication disorders. Um, along with that, the Stuttering Foundation has multiple resources that can assist a therapist in trying to understand where to begin. They have some trainings you can attend that will give you more insight into something called acceptance commitment therapy and also cognitive behavioral therapy. And those are approaches that help an individual learn how to relate to the problem in a different way. It helps us learn how to identify negative thinking and what to do about it. Um, 
So those three things, I think, um, investing the time to thoroughly understand where the person's at, starting your own mindfulness practice, and going to some of these resources, um, those would be the top three. And then I'll just add number four, which is feel free to reach out to colleagues. Feel free to reach out to individuals that specialize in this area. Those of us that do are highly compassionate and passionate about this population and spend a lot of time supporting and assisting other clinicians in doing this work. Mm -hmm. I love all of those resources and such great places to start. Uh, And I will share, because you mentioned a number of um, like different resources that people might be able to find. So I'll put those in the show notes so that people can easily find links to those. Um, And it'll also give like a quick little recap. So that'll be at slpnow.com slash 30. Um, So hopefully you were taking notes, but if you missed something, I've got the link for you. Um, But yeah, I love those tips and just because you recap them beautifully. um, But I just wanted to recap one more time because they were such helpful tips, but investing in that proper evaluation is first using just like that informal conversation, then some paper and pencil assessments. And then there's also standardized options like the OACs um, and then spending time with yourself. And wow, a 200 hour immersion sounds amazing. Mm. I want to learn more about what you did with that. Um, But there's, it doesn't have to be something crazy like that. We can just do like a daily 10 minute practice. And like, like you said, Kristen, there's some amazing apps out there that make that uh, really easy to get started with. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I love the books that you mentioned. Um, Those would definitely help us get on the right track. And those would help, like these strategies would help with our entire caseload. Mm-hmm. So I I love that that so much practical um, information there. Great. And okay, so I'm curious if you because I feel like we have a good place to start now. Um, but I feel like I learn best from just some examples. Like, would you mind diving into like one or two examples of what counseling has sure. looked like for you? Sure. Um, and I think that when when we think about this notion of how do we how do we do counseling, what does this look like? Just like you said, um, the best way that I could create a picture of this for you is that the child is is sitting in the room, and perhaps it's a group of children. It could be just one child, and um, and I'm in the room and. I usually never put anything in between the client and myself. So I never sit across from a table. I usually sit to the side. Um, And there's space to talk about things. Um, I'm going to give you an example. We had a client that came in after he'd been gone for the summer. And he shared a story how... He had been surfing, taking some surfing lessons. He was in about he's in about fifth grade, and the instructor began mocking his stuttering, and called him a couple of names in addition to it. And our client was relaying this experience. First of all, this was not a child who was bullying a child. This was an adult who was bullying a child. And he talked about this for about five minutes, and he got very upset. And one of the most powerful things we can do as we're listening to a scenario like that is make sure our arms and our legs are not crossed. And, you know, your feet are flat on the floor and your knees are bent, and you're just leaning a little bit forward. Sometimes, you know, your hands are in your lap, but they are open when your palms are up. That is a very receiving body posture. Carl Rogers talked about this as joining. It's a joining body posture, which is is communicating that you're not afraid of what's coming at you and that you can handle it 
and you're allowing space for the person to share it. And when he was done sharing this story and he was emotional, and of course on the inside, I'm absolutely furious at what I'm hearing. And um, what I said to him was, the, the first thing I want to say to you is how sorry I am that this happened to you. And that is probably one of the most powerful things we can say to any person who is in distress and sharing an experience is how sorry we are that that happened. And just allowing some silence. So sometimes when there's a situation that suddenly comes up and we don't know what to say or what to do, most likely it's because we're not supposed to say anything except listen and just be comfortable with that moment and just say how sorry we are. Um, and after that, I think we talked about what kinds of, you know, how, what kinds of feelings really came with this. And with children, one of the things that's so powerful, and I learned this from Faber and Maslisch, if you give them some options, they will tell you exactly how they feel. Um, you know, were you mad? Were you sad? Were you disappointed? Were you? And so he was able to share um, what those emotions were. and for us just to validate those, you know, it's okay to feel that way. That's very normal. That's very normal. Um, so that is one example of what counseling might look like. Another example is I had, a I had a high school client come back and we start, she's really struggling, really thinking a lot about her speech during the day not wanting to participate, not feeling comfortable talking in her classes. So sometimes a piece of counseling is gathering information and getting some education about something that's going on. So we just made a list on a piece of paper. I said, take me through your schedule. Okay, your first class is this, your second class is this. She named all the classes, including lunch and whatever else. And then I gave her a rating scale. I said, okay, on a one to 10 scale, how much are you talking in each of these classes? And we went through that. And then we, I said, on a one to 10 scale, how worried are you about talking? And then she made the ratings. And so we were able to identify, I'm sorry, let me add one more thing. After that, I talked about a rating of how comfortable are you with the teacher in these different classes? And we came up with two different classes where she felt she had a high level of comfort with the teacher. And she also felt she had a peer in the class that was supportive. And we were problem solving and deciding, okay, how can we honor what you're feeling right now and be moving in the direction that you want to be moving in, which is to talk when you want. There's such a psychological ramification of, of an individual wanting to share something and holding it back, wanting to share something, holding back. That's that fight or flight response that we do not want to be conditioning over and over again in the brain. So we came up with one particular class, um, and then again, we took the time to have this conversation, and so it, what was decided was that she would go ahead and email the teacher and let the teacher know how uncomfortable she is still feeling, and would the teacher meet with her for a few minutes each week and talk with her individually to help move her in the direction of participating in the class like her peers are doing. That's another example of counseling. Um, one of the things that, um, that we talk about with children and that we also work on ourselves is refining the ability to notice versus evaluate. So when 
we're evaluating, when the child is evaluating, the parent is evaluating, that's a judgment. It's what we think about something and it's good or it's bad uh, versus noticing behavior. And so, for example, we may um, engage the child in some type of speaking situation that they're working on within the therapy room. And then we're asking the child to give his or her own feedback. And we're giving feedback and we've made a rating scale. And we will use this language often. What is it that you want me to notice? And how can I give you that feedback? So we talk a lot about noticing what went well and then noticing what the child might want to consider feeling a little bit more in his or her body or hearing as they're communicating. Um, and we talk a lot about, you know, it's, it's hard for anyone to identify their thoughts around something. I think lots of times the emotions come first and then we can get to the thinking around it. And we talk a lot about the difference between that thought where I was evaluating, you know, I stuttered, I didn't do a good job um, versus what were you noticing about what it looked like and how would you want it to be different? So those types of conversations are also pretty typical. The one thing I want to say is there are many children that really have a resilience about themselves, as well as perhaps a different ability to monitor internally and also those social cues. And they may have some moments of frustration, but they may not present as other children who have a significant amount of anxiety around their inability to communicate at times. And that's why it's so important that we ongoing check in with children. Sometimes I'll, I'll use a little wheel or I'll make something up on paper, just checking in um, or any situations, you know, did you feel something was a big success this week? Did you worry in a situation? Did you find yourself not talking as much as you wanted to? Um, and so we may also have some conversations like that. I, I often, um, I've learned over the years, one of the greatest ways to get in with kids is to do things they don't expect. So lots of times I'll use material that they wouldn't expect and do something sort of creative, um, nothing spectacular, but I, I tend to, I know this is giving away my age, I tend to not really use technology when I do therapy because I, I really want the child to connect with me and connect with my face and to connect with, you know, I want to feel that from their body. So I, I tend to use things that are real, that we can touch. Uh, we, we do a lot of art. Um, sometimes if I have a child that likes art, I'm thinking of another child I work with and, um, she really started developing some fears about talking. She's a third grader and and I knew she loved art, so we started during her session doing a little bit of painting. And while we were painting in a very organic way, um, she started telling me something, and I noticed her have a, a moment of stutter, and she sort of turned away and, and kind of covered her mouth with her hand. And I just very gently said, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. For you to talk any way you want in here. And it's okay if you stutter. And perhaps as you're talking, if you, if you feel a little bit of tension, see if you can hold on to my face with your eyes. Just, just try it. You'll get bigger than the stutter. And she sort of looked at me and she began doing that and her whole reaction to the stutter had changed. And this is a bit of what we call desensitization. And every time it happened, you know, I reinforced her. I'm, I love how you're just talking. You know, we don't teach these children skills and then they apply them and it's fixed. That's not how the game works with this disorder. And that's the most 
probably confusing part about it. What we want is for the body to experience things over and over. In my yoga training, we call it japa, the word japa, J-A-P-A. Doing a little bit of something every single day over time creates something different in the body. And it's experiencing, how does it feel to let a stutter happen, but let go of the reaction and just observe it? That's so desensitizing. And over time, how does it feel to hold on to my face and what courage that took? I ask children often, and this is part of counseling, I have a high school client. I said to him, do you have the courage when you're in a block that's bigger than you want it to be? Do you have the courage to stop for a second and hold the space? You're the one in charge in the conversation box if you're talking. Do you have the courage to do that and just feel, get in your body and then move on? And it's this idea of how can we separate that emotional reaction to the moment of the stuttering. And over time, how can we counter condition that fight or flight response in the brain? That's also what counseling looks like. Um, Boy, I have so many situations every single day. And one of the things that I will tell you, another part of counseling, is making sure to set the child up to be successful. And if something happens, problem solving it so it's understood by the child. Let me give you an example. Um, So I had a particular client who was not receiving services through an IEP. And the teacher wanted the child to do a reading fluency exam for comprehension. And the child said to this teacher, this is a child who's in fifth or sixth grade, said to this teacher, oh, I I can't do that. I can't read fast like that. I stutter. And the teacher sort of brushed it off and said, well, there's no IEP saying that you don't have to, so you have to. And the child did this measure and did not have a positive experience. So what had to happen after that? That that was not okay. Because to the child, the child was put into a situation where she felt completely powerless and um, was very upset after it happened. And so what we had to do then is go back and have a meeting with the child and the teacher and say, well, probably you weren't aware, but that's a measure that we will not be using unless the child wants to. And, you know, we had to have some kind of repair because it wasn't, the teacher didn't do it um, maliciously. She just said there was no accommodation in front of her. And so she moved on. And so when situations occur, We go back and we problem solve with the adult in front of the child if the child is comfortable so that the child learns how to advocate for him or herself. That is critically important and it's a part of counseling as well. I love all of these examples. It's it's so incredibly helpful and you just uh, describe it in a way where I feel like I could imagine you and the student and the whole situation. So, so incredibly powerful. Um, Thank you for giving us some insight into your therapy space. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious too, because you do um, a lot more with therapy than one-on-one sessions. You also have this thing called Camp Shoutout. Um, And I'm curious I just am just curious in general about learning more about that program. Um, And I'm curious if you incorporate, um, like how you incorporate those elements of counseling in more of that group setting, or is there a mix? Yeah. Um, Well, Camp Shoutout is 
I smile when I think about it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We're going into our 10th year. And wow. the camp began when a parent approached me and a special recreation organization. It actually began in the Chicago area. And then I moved the program to Michigan with a colleague uh, to collaborate with her. But I was called and they asked if I'd be willing to do a camp. And I, I'd never been to camp. I've never thought about camp. I was always too afraid to go to camp. I was afraid to go places where I didn't know people because they wouldn't know that I stuttered. And so I said, yes, I think I was recovering from major surgery when they called me. And I said, yes. And then I said, I'll do a camp. And if I'm going to do it, I'm also going to make it an opportunity for clinicians and students to learn more about stuttering. And so that's how it began. And this camp has evolved incredibly. And I, I think that if anything, any any colleague that is involved in this camp and that has been for the past several years will attest to the fact that um, perhaps I model what, what we teach, which is that we all can keep evolving. And um, this camp brings together about 60 children from across the world who stutter ages 8 to 18. And then as well as the trainees from grad schools and also speech pathologists. Um, I have about 11 people on my leadership team that are all highly immersed in fluency work that come to act as facilitators. And we um, interact with the children in a regular overnight recreational summer camp environment. We all stay at the camp. And what we do basically is we take We create and utilize multiple opportunities every single day to set children up to feel power as communicators. That's really what we do. And so um, we obviously approach the therapeutic element a bit differently for the younger children versus the older children, but we do talk about um, what I call the five areas of focus of a competent communicator These are all action-related. They are starting with our thumb, attentive, assertive, confident, effective, and proactive. We we often use the hand as a symbol for for those. I'm actually working on um, an e-book right now about these five areas of focus. Um, But what we do is we create opportunities for children to communicate. And they identify and work on speaking situations. The older children run the whole camp, basically, when it comes to what do we need to do to get this day to work. All the announcements, um, they do presentations. So there are multiple opportunities to stretch themselves as communicators. We also have the opportunity, as many organizations do, and of course there are many good things out there for children who stutter now, We have the opportunity for children to meet other children who stutter and to feel like they are not alone and that they they come to camp and they feel normal. They feel like it doesn't matter if they stutter or not. There are some kids that stutter more than them, some kids that stutter less. And I think that in itself as a therapeutic element. Throughout camp, we also engage in very specific activities to help children learn about emotions, about communicating emotions and having those validated. I'll give an example. Once with the younger children, we had a huge canvas and we drew a silhouette of a body on the canvas. And then all the children gathered around the canvas and we were talking about how when we Um, experience different emotions. Usually they're somewhere in our body. And where do you feel? We talked about a different emotion, let's say anger. Where do you feel that in your body? And then they would place something on that part. We also talked a bit about how emotions can feel like they're a certain shape and a color. And, you know, what, what might that be for you? And about the importance of breathing in to difficult emotions. And some of this comes from acceptance commitment therapy. Um, and Jane Hurley from the Michael Palin Center runs a wonderful conference at Boston University 
um, teaching clinicians about some of these ACT concepts. So that would be an example of an activity. We had a discussion group um, this past summer with our older campers about what we call the imprint experiences. You know, what was something that has happened to you that you think you'll never forget that was either really positive or really difficult around your stuttering? And um, that was a very eye-opening conversation. And it was so intense that when it ended, nobody moved. (laughs) So I got up and I realized no one's moving. And so I just sat back down on the grass. And um, what was incredible was to watch the children and how they shared. And then they supported each other and allowed each other the opportunity to, you know, be emotional and just to say, basically, we've got your back. Um, And I think that's really powerful. When you can bring together a group of people and create, you know, this general community of reinforcement that is so powerful. Um, This makes a big difference in terms of counseling children. The other thing that we stress in a very highly energetic and positive way is the importance of cultivating a mindset around this disorder and that You may stutter sometimes, and it is a really smart idea to keep evolving as a communicator. That's what every smart person does, (laughs) whether they stutter or not. And so we try and and bring this concept as well, which I think also is a counseling aspect in dealing with this disorder. Wow, that sounds like such an amazing experience. Uh, I... Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about that. Um, And we are running a little bit close on time, but I really wanted to squeeze in this last question, if that's okay with you. Yes, of course. Um, So what role do parents play in, like, how do you bring in your your chat or your patients or your clients' parents? Um, And if you have any suggestions in terms of how speech therapists might be able to do this in the schools? Yes, I, um, of course, parents play an essential role. And whether it's a parent, it's a caregiver, it's someone else that is important in the child's life, or it's someone else working at the school that you can engage in the process. There are times where in the school setting, we we don't get the parents in. Um, But I think engaging in with another adult um, can make a significant impact on on the child and in the child's life. Um, I think what's important is that we invest the time in allowing parents to talk about what this is like for them and how they are feeling and to be able to also let them express those feelings and emotions and validate those coming from the parent as well. Um, I think that there are different opportunities for parents to meet other parents. I have known clinicians that have gone the extra mile and and started a parent group right in their school district and had all the parents of children who stutter from the different schools come together once a month. I think providing them education is very important, not just sending them to a website, but giving them something or exactly what you want them to read so that you're comfortable with the philosophy of what they're reading and and what it says is very important. And also um, helping them understand that it's okay if their child is experiencing some discomfort or they're having a hard time and modeling for them how to sit with the child or how to respond. Um, You know, we have obviously in private practice, someone is bringing the child. Sometimes um, it's tricky to get parents in, believe it or not. I do a lot of um, telepractice work as well. And sometimes I do set up individual meetings with parents just so I can make sure that I'm aware of what's going on. Um, I think that their approach to the problem models for the child how this is how this is basically um it takes an awfully strong parent to walk into the ice cream store and stand right next to his or her child and watch them stutter and finish um and and stand there proud 
And I think um, some we take clients out to do these different speaking situations, and we often model for parents um, how they can do that. And I think helping them keep the lines of communication open with their child, talking about the speech sometimes. You know, every parent, I think, wants the best for their child and helping them recognize they're doing the best that they can. And I have to remind myself often to to praise and reinforce what the parent is doing um, because they need that reinforcement just as much as the child does. Yeah, I love those points. So um, some of the takeaways there for me were um, just investing the time in those relationships and um, leaving space for the parents to talk about what it's like for them, expressing their feelings, validating that, um, providing opportunities to meet other parents, providing education. Um, And I love the, just the little insight that you gave with modeling how to sit with a child and how Mm -hmm. to um, just how a parent can model to their child about what that experience is and what that means. Um, And then always praising and reinforcing. Um, I think those are some really amazing takeaways. Um, So we are wrapping up on our time together. I'm curious if you had any last um, pieces of wisdom or anything that you wanted to share that we didn't get to yet. I think the last thing I'd like to say is that I believe that I have developed the counseling skills that I have through going through my own personal counseling, through attending and learning and doing different courses that focused in on counseling, and also with through self-reflection. So when, and self-reflection is something that's hard to do, and it's the greatest learning opportunity. So when something would happen with a child, a client, a teacher, a parent, I would sit back and at first sometimes I would be saying something about the other person as we so quickly can do. And then I would step back and I would say, what was my part in that? What was it about that that caused me to react this way? And what am I going to do differently next time? That's probably the best piece of advice I could ever give anyone. Um, When we begin to self-reflect, we understand our responses and we become more compassionate towards ourselves, and it allows us to show up for the other person. I've really enjoyed this, Marisha. I I could talk with you for a long time about this. And of course, I so appreciate you committing this time to helping children who stutter. Yeah, and thank you for all of your wisdom and advice. Um, I know I definitely took a lot of notes, and um, I'm excited to be able to Um, implement and start practicing some of these strategies myself. Um, And I know that the other SLPs listening will be in the exact same boat. Um, And then before we officially wrap up, uh, where can people find out more about you? Um, Well, they can go to my website at camellafluencycenter.com. They can also go to campshoutout.org. Um, those would be some good places. Okay. I do need to probably learn more about these types of, of mediums and, you know, the social media and the things that the young person is using so much now. I'm, um, as soon as I stop working so much, I'm going to devote some time to that. So, (laughs) yeah, well, if you ever want to chat, I'm happy to dive into all of those things. Um, and yeah, you've provided, so much wisdom and advice here. Um, Like I said before, I'm so incredibly grateful um, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share that with us. And yeah, that's all that we've got for today. So if you want to um, head to slpnow.com slash 30, that's where you can find all of the show notes and resources that uh, Kristen mentioned during our conversation today. And um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. 
This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.